This is the Photography Podcast on Photography.ca, episode number 117, removing noise and halos and other junk from your images, an interview with Royce Howland. Hey there, photo lovers. How's it going? And welcome to the 117th photography podcast on photography.ca. My name is Marco. And as usual, we're coming to you from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. For today's show, we have the longest podcast we've ever recorded. It's an hour and 10 minutes, and it's an interview with a fine art photographer, uh, Royce Howland. And Royce has been on our podcast before. He helped us do number 107, where we talked about photorealistic HDR. Because this podcast is long, I'm going to keep this intro short. I just want to thank uh, Jared Fine and uh, Enrique Wazell for their comments on podcast number 116, where uh, we had an interview with Michael Breitung, and uh, he did a fascinating podcast with us all about focus stacking. But like I said, this podcast is a long one, though I must say it's really, really, really interesting. And I think you're really going to get informed if you listen through to the end. But because this is a long podcast, we're just going to get right into the interview now. And I'd like to welcome a really special guest to our podcast today. Uh, today's guest is Royce Howland, and uh, he's been our guest before. Uh, Royce did a podcast with us on uh, creating realistic HDR a little while back already, maybe over a year. That was number 107. This time, Royce is going to help... Uh, demystify and talk about how to get rid of garbage and noise and how to get rid of unwanted things and artifacts from our images. But before we get into it, hi, Royce. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. No problem, Marco. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's, uh, it's a blast to be back on photography.ca. Thanks so much. So, you know, originally um, I had this idea because, you know, uh, we run a pretty decent forum on photography.ca and issues of noise come up frequently. Uh, sometimes I'll see noise or other artifacts uh, in people's images and then other times people are just, you know, asking why these things are happening and how they can control them. So let's just talk about this in, in a really general term. You know, why do these things happen, Royce? And uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, things like halos and noise and chromatic aberration. But uh, maybe you could just give us an introduction into this phenomenon, if you don't mind. For sure. So there's a lot of things that uh, that end up in our image because we want them there. And let's just call those, you know, features. It's uh, it's color, contrast, shapes, objects, things like that, and uh, it, it's what we wanted. It's what we were photographing. It's what we're trying to show to our viewers. But as anybody that has experience with digital photography, especially, and doing any post-processing in, you know, Aperture, Lightroom, Photoshop, will know it's possible to see stuff start to creep in there, artifacts that are uh, either flaws or mistakes or things that are not desirable. We didn't photograph them, we don't want them, and if they're minor, you know, maybe we don't care and we just leave them and move on. But in certain circumstances, it can become much more major and actually starts to detract from the enjoyment and from the quality of the image. So let's just call that whole class of things defects or flaws, and we'd like to know how to get rid of those. Now, the interesting thing is that a camera is a really complicated uh, piece of gear there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in there. You've got glass, optics, you've got digital sensors, you know, you've got electronics and things going on. Then you download the image onto your computer and you start running some software. There's a whole lot of moving parts involved in modern digital photography. And these different defects and flaws that may creep into your image come from different places. 
you need to understand where the problem is coming in in order to know how to get rid of it. What's the most common one in your opinion? What do you, I mean, your eye may be sharper than most. I see a lot of different artifacts as well, but uh, because you're attuned to it, you're probably likely seeing loads more than I am even. What are you seeing commonly that um, people are doing wrong? Let's uh, pick on the topic of halos to start with because it's a bit of a kind of a continuance from my HDR podcast that I did back in number 107. Anybody that's seen HDR photography and maybe has taken a bit of a disliking to it probably recognizes that in a lot of the HDR so-called shots that they see on the web or wherever in books, magazines, they have certain characteristics to them that are off-putting to people that want to have a more photorealistic style. And of course, that's the whole topic we covered back in podcast 107 was how to keep it photorealistic. For sure. But one of the factors that creeps into HDR is is a, and a factor that we'll call a halo. Now, what is a halo and where does it come from? Uh, you can think of a halo and a classic example is where you've got the edge of a building or some tree branches or a, a ridge line of mountains that are sticking up into the clear blue sky and you see this bloom of brighter area around the building or the mountain ridge or the tree branches uh, that kind of outlines the edge of the mountain or the edge of the building. So the sky should be kind of a uniform blue, but there's this bloom of lighter colored blue in the sky tracking around the edge of the solid object. That's a halo. All of these halos are created from the same place. They don't come from the lens optics. They don't come from the digital sensor in your camera. And almost always, they don't come from any kind of a natural effect of the real light that's out there in the scenery. Where they come from is software techniques that are boosting what we call local contrast. In small region of the image, you have something that's a bit dark and something that's a bit brighter that forms an edge or a boundary between two different objects or two different regions of the scene. And when you do a local contrast enhancement, to make the image pop a little more, what you're doing is you're making that brighter thing a little brighter and the darker thing a little darker. So in our example, say of a bunch of tree branches poking up into the sky, the tree branches are probably darker and the sky is brighter. So we darken the tree branches a little more and we brighten the sky a little more in a small localized area around those tree branches. And what that ends up doing is creating a halo pattern in the sky where the sky is not uniformly blue the way you would expect, there's this lighter colored bloom of light blue surrounding the tree branches. And when you step back and look at it from a bit of a distance, it really stands out like a sore thumb. That's a halo. Really well described. And, you know, the more you start to look for it, the more you're going to see it, right? Uh, the more you dabble into HDR and the more you dabble into boosting contrast in general, I would think, the more you may come across this phenomenon if you're not careful with it. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, like we're seeing now different suites of software programs as well. Um, you know, some of these, you know, um, all-in-one HDR programs. So they can also boost the contrast um, locally to a point where if it's boosted a little too far, we can notice this haloing just as you've described it. Exactly. And this, uh, the first common occurrence of these halos actually predates the, uh, the, the popular HDR packages a little bit. There was a tool called Shadow Highlight that Adobe put out in a much older version of Photoshop. And, you know, this happens to everybody. When you get a new tool, you go crazy and you start using it on everything. And, you know, we're all guilty of this. And quite often we use it a bit too much. We overuse it or we abuse it. So when Shadow Highlight was first introduced into Photoshop, 
shadow highlight is another tool for boosting local contrast. It has nothing to do with HDR, you know, shooting multiple exposures and blending them and all that stuff. It was a tool that just boosted local contrast in a single image. And I saw, oh, I don't know, hundreds upon hundreds of badly done images that got posted onto online forums where people said, look, I can boost the shadows up way light and, you know, I can boost the highlights and, you know, do all this recovery of detail. And the thing was full of all these haloed areas and strange tonal regions where the brightness or the darkness of something quite obviously was really processed. I mean, it looks cooked. It does not look, if you were standing there, the way that those objects would have looked to the naked eye. So those halos, you know, can be caused by a number of different tools. Uh, modern day, if people are running the Adobe suite, you know, Photoshop or Lightroom, there's a new slider that they'll be familiar with when they convert their RAW files. The slider is called the Clarity Slider. And what Clarity does is it's another local contrast boosting tool. And if you crank it, it produces halos as well. So there's a whole bunch of areas and tools and software that can produce the same kind of effect because what all of them are doing at the end of the day is they're boosting local contrast. And that's why maybe we're seeing this. I mean, you're saying you were seeing this many years ago. I mean, as people, you know, learn and get better and their skills improve, different people are at different levels. I'm still noticing this all over the place now. And, you know, it's again, because there are more tools and people are experimenting, which is a great thing, but uh, maybe they need to pull back the experimentation when it starts to generate, you know, artifacts and unnatural looking things into their images. So glad we're talking about this today for sure. Yeah, and let, let's jump off of that point uh, real quickly for a second here, and that is not everything that we may call a flaw is, is truly a flaw. Uh, the great thing about photography is that it's a really democratic art form, and that is anybody can come into it at any level they want, and they can push forward and develop their skill set and their craft as hard and fast and far as they want or not. And so I always give everybody the freedom to express themselves the way that they want. And whenever I'm doing uh, critiquing, for example, if somebody asks me to critique a portfolio of their images or I participate in online forums where we do image critique, one of the key things as a, as a reviewer, as a critic, so-called, is to find out what the intention of the artist was. And then you can judge their results versus their intention. I would never go in and look at a thing and just instantly slam it without understanding the artist and what their whole motivation was doing. Interesting uh, point here, uh, you know, cross-pollinating with the, the field of painting, which I've been doing a little bit of study to try to help myself become a better photographer. Ah, cool. The, the, the famous Canadian painter, Emily Carr, who was uh, loosely associated with the Group of Seven uh, back in the 1930s, in her final phase of her work that most of us probably are familiar with, if we know the work of Emily Carr, it's from the last uh, kind of phase of her professional development, she uses halos extensively in her painting as a deliberate device to separate the abstract shapes and forms and regions within her painting. Uh, a painting is something you construct by, you know, building up a blank canvas and laying layer upon layer of paint down upon it. But she did it in a way where there were very deliberate halos, regions of lighter and darker uh, contrast to delineate the edges between the abstract forms that she was putting onto the canvas. It's a very specific technique and she was using it. So if you think about halos as a creative artist, not necessarily as a documentary photographer, you might actually want to use halos deliberately in a measured way to achieve a creative effect in your image making. And so if you set out to do that and you know how to master your tools to create that effect, that could be a perfectly legitimate thing that you would want to do. 
but I think what we probably see in a lot of cases is people are stumbling into halos just through not necessarily knowing how to control the tool to produce the effect they really want and they are you know pushing it a bit too hard and it's resulting in an artifact that is kind of a flaw to the image love that you brought up that you could use it creatively uh, I mean that's a way to make something your own you know you know a flaw to someone else is, is absolute you know a treasure to someone else so you're absolutely sure. right and you know in areas of high contrast it can indeed be legitimate to see a halo when you're looking you know straight into the sun that's right behind a building there's a white halo around the sun it should be there in some cases it's not completely unnatural you know so Correct. you we can use it creatively and i'm super happy that you brought it up we will likely get into that uh, same issue again when we talk about noise, you know, how to reduce noise. For some people, noise is great as well. So it's nice that uh, we could also talk about this with, with haloing. But as we said, most people don't do this deliberately. So how do we get rid of these halos, Royce? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's call it a flaw. And let's <laughs> say we want to get it out of there. So the, the general comment that I'm going to make in all of these, uh, these defects that we talk about today is the best way to get it out of there is not to let it get in there in the first place. Sure. You know, the easiest work to do is just don't even have to do the work at all. Right. So how did the halo get in? I mentioned this at the beginning. It's because we're boosting local contrast using a software tool of some kind, whether it's shadow highlight tool in Photoshop or it's the clarity slider in Lightroom or it's an HDR contrast boosting slider of some kind if you push the software settings too far they're going to produce halos so the best way to get rid of the halo is don't push the software settings so far uh, take it to the point and train your eye and of course this is something i've done because i've worked in hdr a long time so i'm sensitive to it now push the software settings to the point where you're starting to see that effect show up and then back it off again to the point where you are not seeing that effect anymore and this is something to watch out for. Uh, you know, we've heard the cliche about uh, the frog sitting in the pot of water on a stove. And as long as you dial the heat up slowly, he'll continue to sit in there and eventually boil because he doesn't realize it's getting hotter. But if you take a frog and you throw him into a pot of water that's already boiling, he'll jump right out again because he goes, my God, that's hot and I don't want to be in there. I mean, it's a good point. You know, if we don't dial it too far, we may go, oh, that's cool. That's cool. But when you dial it too far, you'll start to see like the halo in particular glow. And then you're like, oh, I don't want this halo to glow. So pull back. So you're right. I mean, I think it's a great, uh, great tip, actually. Go yeah. too far and then pull back kind of thing. Exactly. And, and I, I'll reinforce that point. Go too far deliberately. So take those sliders, crank them to the point where you are seeing it and train your eye to say, ah, that's what too far looks like. I'm not going to go that far. You pull back and don't be the boiling frog sitting in the pot while the heat is coming up. This is something that when people work on a single image and you work on it for, you know, minute after minute after minute and hour after hour, you are the frog sitting in the water and the heat is dialing up. The way you protect yourself from that is make a shocking change to the image immediately, push it too far, instantly your eye says, whoa, I can see that effect, I don't want that, and now you know where your edge is, and you can say, I'm going to stay well back from that edge. Good tip, good tip. But let's talk about the second case then. So let's say you've got an image where, uh, for some reason, the halos are already in it, and now you want to actually remove them. So now we've, we've got the, the case of, yeah, you are going to have to do some work because something has already happened and, and you're stuck with the halos. Yeah. So one of the uh, one of the interesting things with this uh, the clarity slider in uh, Photoshop, Adobe Camera Raw, the raw converter, and in Lightroom, both of those tools can work not only on raw files but also on TIFFs 
and JPEGs. I don't know how many people know this about Adobe Camera Raw, but if you uh, change your config settings, you can get Photoshop to load up TIFF and JPEG images in ACR. And that's where the clarity slider shows up. Now, the thing about the clarity slider is you can slide it negative as well as positive. If you slide it positive, it increases the local contrast, which is going to boost up those halos. But if you slide the clarity slider negative, it reduces local contrast and actually will counteract a halo that may already be in there. So say you're stuck with an image that's got some haloing in it, you can fire it up in Lightroom or in Adobe Camera Raw and actually reverse the clarity a little bit to actually take that halo backwards and reduce it. Obviously, uh, the same caveat uh, will likely apply, right? If you go too far, you'll get uh, mush, you'll degrade sharpness. What happens if you go too far? Yeah, absolutely. You get mush. Everything starts to kind of go gray and flat. You know, you're, you're taking some of the natural pop out of the image. So a second tip is, especially for people who are used to working in Photoshop, you know, either the full Photoshop uh, CS, modern version is CS6, or Photoshop Elements, you can stack two versions of the image file over top of each other as layers. So your bottom layer would be the original image that had the halos in it. You take a copy of that image, throw it through the Adobe Camera Raw trick and reduce the clarity. So it's going to minimize the halos, but it might also make the image look a little gray and mushy. Stack that as a second layer over top of the first one. And now you can do some layer blending in Photoshop by selectively masking in just the part of the image where you've reduced the halo a bit and then leave the rest of the image where the local contrast is still boosted up a little higher and it's going to be more poppy in those kinds of areas. So using layers in Photoshop is an advantage that you have that you don't have in Lightroom, for example, because you cannot stack image layers in Lightroom. Um, that's where you would go to Photoshop and do a little bit of quick, uh, quick layer work to selectively take that contrast boost out of the halo area, but leave it in the rest of the area where you want some zip. Good tip, good tip. And uh, although a lot of people don't have Photoshop. I do know that GIMP is a powerful program as well. GIMP does work with layers and uh, lots of people on, um, you know, on the net and some people on our forum as well are using GIMP in, in identical ways to Photoshop. So um, I might actually do a little search to see uh, what similar resources are available after the podcast. But um, great trick with layers. Any program that can do layers, um, you know, you just copy the layer and then you can do selective masking, as you say, on just that particular area. And you could reduce your halo that way if you need to, for sure. Sure, Window Pro is another common Windows application that will support layers. And I believe uh, Paint Shop Pro, that uh, old-time classic app that's available from the, the Corel guys, uh, I believe it'll do multiple layers as well, and then you can blend them. So anything basically that lets you stack image layers, you can go in and selectively uh, remove those. But let's say, uh, let's say you've got a, uh, an application that doesn't have layers, but it does have some sort of a tool uh, that Photoshop calls uh, the Dodge and Burn tools. Uh, these are available in Photoshop in the Tools palette. And what Dodging does, uh, these terms come from the old, old school film darkroom days. Dodging, burning. Dodging is lightening an area of the image and burning is darkening. So it, uh, it pops up on Photoshop as a, as a paintbrush tip. And when you have the Dodge tool selected, anywhere that you paint, it darkens whatever is under the brush. And anywhere you paint with the dodge tool, it's going to lighten it. So you can manually go into an image on a single layer that's maybe got some halo in the sky, for example, and you want to darken those bright halos down a little bit. Select your burn tool, put a, a fairly wide soft edge tip on it so that it's really feathered, you know, not a hard edge on your brush. And go in and just paint the dodge tool over that halo very shortly with a very, very low percentage. Both of these tools allow you to set a percentage of, 
of uh, 1% to 100%. Set something really low, like 1% or 2%. Paint your burn brush tip over top of that halo area and just gradually darken it down again until you cannot see that halo there. So that's a manual retouching uh, way of doing it. But if you need to, you know, uh, some pictures are, are so precious, you know, and there's one flaw and you make yourself crazy, you need to fix it because you only have that one frame. Sometimes you have to go in there manually. So, um, you know, good tip on how to do it manually as well. Yeah, for sure. Final tip is if you've got uh, maybe a region of sky uh, at a beachfront shot where you've got a very flat, straight horizon, and maybe you've got a halo that's very even and regular. It's a horizontal area that's too bright because the sea out in the distant horizon is just flat and straight. You can do something like throw in a, a curves or a contrast uh, filter tool. Again, this would be something that uh, most applications would support as a layer. And then you could mask on top of that layer using a gradient pattern. So uh, basically ramps up or ramps down the region where your curve adjustment or your contrast adjustment is going to have an impact. And you blend the gradient so that the maximum amount of the curve or contrast filter is happening in the sky area just above the horizon line. But then it starts to bleed down to, down to nothing as you go up into the air to the top level of the sky. And this will generally be a gradient that's in the reverse brightness of the brightness of the sky. So it will help you damp down that uh, that halo across a, a straight flat edge, much like you would do with a reverse graduated neutral density filter if you were using filters in the field to shoot and trying to control that contrast uh, in your in your camera during the capture process. Yeah, do- it's bringing that contrast down in a very localized area. Exactly. Okay. That's halos. Why don't we try and get into noise now for a little bit? And uh, noise is a different beast, isn't it? Absolutely. So when we, uh, you know, we're talking at the top, you said, where does the issue come from? Because that'll tell us something about what we need to do to fix it. Halos come from software processing well after the fact, but noise comes from inside the camera. And in particular, uh, we're talking about digital noise here. We're not going to really get into film grain, which sort of visually looks similar, but it's a completely different animal. Digital noise really is coming from the sensor and the electronics in the digital camera. It's entirely a property of the way the sensor captures information. All sensors and the electronics in there, uh, without getting too technical about it, I'm going to use a term that they have what's called a noise floor. There's a certain level of noise available off of that particular sensor that's just a property of the way the sensor works and the way the electronics work. And you can't have any less noise than that. That's why it's called the noise floor. You drop down to a certain point, now you hit noise, and you're going to have that amount of noise no matter what. But the key here is that if we talk about another uh, kind of a semi-technical term, people, most people probably have heard this, signal-to-noise ratio The signal is really the light that's hitting the sensor. If you have a very, very small amount of light, let's say you're taking a photograph outdoors on a moonless night, it's very dark, there's not a lot of light anywhere. So the noise floor of your sensor is going to say, I'm going to have a certain amount of this speckling, colored, grainy noise on the sensor, and there's not very much light coming into the sensor. So the detail that gets recorded by the sensor, in fact, is that speckling from the noise floor because there's hardly any other light coming in to replace it. But if you go outdoors at high noon in the mountains with a lot of bright reflecting snow around and you're squinting, you know, because you're snow blind, a lot of light, it's super bright. 
So the signal is the amount of light flooding in to hit the sensor. It's huge and it completely blows away the noise floor. And what the sensor is recording is all of this light that's just pouring in through the lens. The noise is not going to be visible whatsoever. In between these two extremes, you have some light, not none and not a massive amount. You've got some. So the noise is kind of in there. If you looked really, really hard, you probably would be able to see a little bit of speckling, but, but not too much. It's not that big of a factor. So that's what we mean when we say signal to noise ratio. The signal is the amount of light coming in. The more light you have, it's going to blow away the noise floor that's an inherent property of your sensor. But the less light you have, the more that the noise floor of the sensor starts to dominate and what the sensor is actually recording is the false speckling detail of the noise of the electronics. Really well explained. Uh, and if I understand you correctly, you're suggesting that noise is born at the time of capture for sure, is inherent in the electronics of the camera. It's not something that you introduce with your software later. It's also not something to do with the lens, you know, with the glass optics or something to do with the light on the scene out in, out in reality. It's entirely a capture property of the digital sensor sitting there in the guts of your camera. Good to know. Actually, let's back up just for a minute or two. You said it's not really related to film grain and film is a different uh, process. But yet there is a bit of a similarity, or at least a perceived similarity. When we shot film, the higher we went on the film speed, the more grain we have. And most people likely know or have experienced that, uh, you know, the higher they raise their ISO, and then they take a picture at the time of capture, the more noise they have. So isn't there some similarity in, in that respect? There's a, there's a pragmatic similarity to it. You're absolutely right. So uh, on modern digital cameras, we have a setting now called ISO. Back in the, the bad old days of film, we started out calling it ASA, and then eventually they later called it ISO. So you had ASA 100, 200, 400. I remember when my dad, uh, you know, he had a Minolta 35 millimeter camera, and when ASA uh, Kodak film, ASA 400 first came out, everybody marveled. I mean, that was high-speed film. And when we started getting some of our family photos, you know, from the barbecue or the family vacation at the farm or whatever on that ASA 400 film, it was grainy. I mean, it was uh, it was really noticeable. But the thing with film is that film is actually a, a piece of plastic that has chemicals on it and particles of stuff. And when we say film grain, we're really talking about a very physical property of the, the particle size and the chemistry that's on that piece of plastic in your roll of film. That's what film grain is. And it was a very physical thing. And it was in some ways, it was very natural. Digital noise is not a physical thing. It's a purely electronic thing. And in a way, some parts of it are artificial. They're fake. One thing that uh, we know, for example, is when you're doing a long exposure, say you go out to do star trails at night. So you're taking maybe a five-minute exposure, 10-minute, 30-minute exposure on your digital camera, the shutter is open and the camera is recording and so the sensor is active and it's sitting there. And what's happening is, as happens with all electronics, the more it's running, the hotter it's getting. And as a sensor heats up, it starts to generate more noise because the heat in the electronics is actually creating, think of it as static that's not an issue with film. Film doesn't heat up during a long exposure. It's just the shutter is open, the film is exposing, light is coming in. You have other issues with uh, with film during long exposure, but the, the film itself heating up is not a part of the problem. 
but it is a part of the problem in electronics and the longer your exposure is the more noise you get also the higher your iso is the more noise you get because the the way that those high iso settings work in a digital camera is there's some electronic amplifier in your camera just like on your stereo system has an amp we're all familiar with that uh, inside the camera when you jack the ISO from 100 to 200, 4, 8 and on up. I mean, some cameras have like 128,000 ISO, which is insanity. <laughs> it's doing is running a little amplifier in there that's taking the signal, which was that amount of light that came in and it's boosting it. But if there was not much light coming in in the first place because it was dark or maybe it was a black cat, you know, even a black cat at high noon is still black. It's going to be a dark object when you try to boost up the ISO to take a photograph of that black cat in midair as he's pouncing on something and you want to freeze that action with a really fast shutter speed, that cat is going to be noisy because he's not putting off much light. And the higher you boost the ISO or the more that sensor is running for a long exposure, the more noise you get. And this is this is not a physical thing. It's a fake thing just because of the way the electronics work. And if we could do tricks in the electronics, which the guys are, the designers and the engineers are very smart and they're doing better at this all the time, they can take that false part of the noise that comes only from the electrical property and they can reduce that over time. But there are some parts of noise that come from just the way light works. And this is where you start getting into quantum physics and all that really cool stuff is sort of a permanent thing because that's physics and you cannot get rid of that stuff. All right. Interesting. So the only similarity is that it's, uh, you know, this the signal to noise ratio is boosted using a high film speed, I guess, or a high um, ISO. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. So the, the cause of the film grain and the cause of the digital noise are two very different things. But you, you can have a tripwire that gets you in trouble on both of them in the same way by boosting your ISO or, uh, you know, by having dark subjects because you don't have much signal. You don't have much light coming in. The darker it is, you know, or the higher the speed, the higher the ISO, you're going to get more film grain and you're going to get more digital noise. The causes are very different, but the tripwire that triggers it into you is the same in both cases, dark subs or high ISO. Because for those few people that are still shooting film, your example with the cat, you're not going to get that if you're shooting film. Is that correct? Well, if you're shooting a high ISO film... Yeah, like no, 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 no. Like, let's say you're shooting, you know, uh, ISO 100, and it's 1 or 2 in the afternoon, and the, you know, and the cat is, is jumping through the scene, and you're using a really fast shutter. No reason to get excessive film grain in that case, as far as I know. That's correct, because the, the, the film grain is coming from the physical property of the, of the chemistry of the, of the film itself. Uh, it's not because of the amount of light that's coming in. Whereas in digital, a black cat doesn't have much signal and you're getting hit by that digital signal-to-noise ratio problem. Uh, that's a property just of the digital side, not a film. Cool. Perfect. In fairness to halos, uh, you talked about how you could use them creatively. So there are creative uses to noise, of course. Definitely. So noise is not always a problem, just the way that film grain was not always a problem. I mean, people shot film that uh, was grainy for a long time, whether it was black and white or color film. And people didn't, you know, pull their hair out and run screaming into the street, uh, crying, oh my God, you know, about all this horrible film grain. It was something uh, that you're aware of, you know, you, you know your media, you know your materials, and you try to minimize those effects, but you deal with them because they're there. So noise can be the same. Uh, these days, if you're doing digital photography, say, uh, say you're doing a lot of black and white digital photography work, and you want to introduce a bit of a vintage look, you might actually go in and not only not remove the noise that's in there, but you might add even more noise 
I just completed a, what, uh, according to our audiences, was a very successful exhibit series over the last three months here in Calgary, where all of the images that I showed in print were black and white. And as I was working with the uh, the Calgary-based uh, master printer to do the, the proof prints as we were working our way along, we realized, son of a gun, these images, there's something missing. They look too clean. I wanted them to have that classic black and white four by five kind of uh, film look, not uh, not out of sense of just aping it, but because I was trying to do a bit of a vintage retro look. So we actually went in and we did some image adjustments on every single one of the images by adding Photoshop layers in to add noise to the images. And when we then reprinted them, they just had a little more of that grainy kind of film sort of a look to them. And that was the icing on the cake. And now we had a look that we were happy with. And so we printed them and those are the ones that went into the exhibit. That's, uh, you know, that's contrarian. You know, that's going against uh, conventional wisdom, which would say you should run noise reduction and have the cleanest possible file. In this case, the cleanest possible file was not the look that I wanted. I wanted some grain in there. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that as well. I mean, it's so perfectly legitimate to, you know, take a flaw to someone else and make it your own. As, as, you, as you may know, as, as listeners to the podcast know, I come from the darkroom world. And for years, you know, I bought 3200 film and boosted it to 6400 so that the grain would be more golf ball-like. That added a certain effect to some of the work I was shooting back then. Um, I was shooting very textured work. I wanted skin to have a textured feel. And the film, high speed, making it noisy, making it grainy, you know, was the perfect solution for me. So I can easily see, and I'm glad you brought it up, that you yourself are using it um, as creative expression versus a flaw that must be gotten rid of sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the the factor that you just talk about of introducing texture is a really legitimate thing. Uh, skin tone, or if you're a nature photographer working outdoors where you've got wood surfaces, rock, stone, uh, or you're photographing, you know, rusty metal or, uh, you know, distant foliage or grassy fields where there's natural organic texture going on in there. You might look at your files and honestly, I, I'm starting to feel this way a little bit just to be philosophical for a half a second that in some ways, Many digital files that I see look a little bit soulless. They look a little too perfect. They're a little too flat. They don't have character. So you might say, I want to work uh, in a way that's more textured. And so I'm going to use digital grain as one of the things that I do. And I either leave the natural grain in there or I add a bit more. And maybe when I'm printing, I'm printing on a nice matte paper that's got a really textured tooth to it because I'm really trying to drive the sense of this almost tactile feeling of texture to my subject, noise can be a really creative thing that you're actually uh, using for a very specific purpose. Um, you might also use it as a technical means to correct another flaw that we won't talk about in, in too, detailed, too much detail today, but uh, I think many people who started out by shooting JPEG inside the camera may have encountered situations where they load those image files into uh, a, an image processing program like Photoshop and they start doing a little bit of work with color and contrast and suddenly strange banding patterns appear in an area, for example, of clear blue sky. Suddenly there are these bands of blue that kind of step across the sky. Uh, banding, or as it's also called posterization, is something, uh, and this is another contrarian kind of a point, that you can actually get rid of by introducing noise because noise kind of throws a bunch of random speckling over top of the image and where you've got those sharp edges in the bands that have suddenly crept into your sky, 
if you throw a layer of noise over top of that, it sort of randomly speckles those edges on the banding layers and removes the banding edges. Suddenly you look at it and you go, oh, now it looks like smooth, continuous sky again. So that's another uh, a case where one thing that you view as a flaw actually turns out being a solution to another type of flaw that is actually really, really hard to get rid of on its own. Band, <laughs> if you have banding in an image and you've ever tried to get rid of it, you know it can be pernicious. I mean, it's extremely hard to get it out of there. Throw some noise on it, actually, that might get rid of it right there. Right. I mean, um, most of our uh, viewers are going to be raw shooters, but just really quickly, you know, when you shoot raw, you have a bigger file. So sometimes when people shoot JPEG and they try to do too much to it, because the file is smaller, they introduce additional artifacts while they're working. But as Royce just suggested, I mean, if you want to make that another, you know, arrow in your quiver, then all the more power to you. Correct. There are some areas where you might want to use noise for a specific purpose, but let's say, okay, set those aside and let's call it back like we did with halos and say, nope, it's a flaw, it's a defect, I want it out of here. But to kind of repeat the structure from when we talked about the halos, I'm going to say the easiest way to get rid of the noise is just don't have it in the first place or have as little of it as you can possibly have in the first place. When we talked about uh, the, the sources of noise and where it comes from in the, the way that the digital recording is made, uh, we talked about it's related to the ISO setting on your camera. So the higher the ISO setting, the more the noise. The lower the ISO setting, the less the noise. So if you want less noise, use a lower ISO setting. In fact, use the lowest one that you can. When I'm out photographing landscapes or other static scenes where there's nothing moving around, like architecture, for example, I'm shooting on a tripod almost all of the time, and so I use the lowest ISO setting on my camera all the time. ISO 50, 80, or 100, typically those are your, your low settings. And I almost never use a higher ISO unless I have a very specific reason to do so. And that guarantees me the lowest noise in those shots. And that's uh, totally useful for, uh, you know, landscape photography, but it's not always practical when we're not shooting with a tripod, let's say. So as a general rule, it's safe to say, you know, use the lowest ISO possible that, you know, gives you a respectable shutter speed kind of thing. Exactly. The second thing that you can do then, once you, once you know where that ISO is, and it could be 100 or it might be 3200, you know, wherever you have to set the ISO to get the, uh, the shutter speed the way you want to freeze the motion or do whatever, make sure that your exposure is as accurate as possible. One of the things that bites a lot of people that are new to digital photography is they get used to looking at the way the image looks on the LCD on the back of their camera. And if it looks good on the LCD, they think, uh, you know, I've, I've got it right. And they go back and they realize later uh, there's a lot of noise in there because what happens is for it to look good on the LCD, it may very well be underexposed by one to two to even three stops darker than uh, than the camera could really record it. Now, when we talked about where the noise comes from up at the at the top of this segment, the noise is going to be magnified anywhere in the dark or the shadow tone regions of that image. So, if you're underexposing your image, that means overall the image is darker than the camera possibly could record it. That means you're actually going to have more noise in the image. So, when you load it into, say, you are a raw shooter, you load it into your Aperture Lightroom Photoshop. It looks a little too dark now on your big computer monitor, so you try to instantly boost the exposure. Well, because you had underexposed it to start with, you've got more noise in there. Now you boost the exposure. Well, you're also going to boost the noise, and so now it's even going to look worse. So once you pick your ISO that you need to get the shot, 
make sure that your exposure in camera is as bright as you reasonably can make it without blowing out any of your important highlights. It's far, far better to overexpose the shot and then darken it later if you need to, rather than to underexpose the shot and brighten it. Because if you underexpose and brighten, you are going to boost the noise. If you overexpose and darken, you are not going to have any noise factor because you had less noise to start with. Now, the caveat here, and I know instantly there's going to be howls on the internet <laughs> I'm screaming it in my head, Royce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure you are. Overexpose only as long as you're not blowing out any important highlights. That, that obviously is a given. Uh, expose as bright as you can without blowing out highlights that you care about and then darken it later if you need to. That's going to give you a more noise-free image. So at the end of the day, I mean, it's actually, it, it's good histogram practice. Pay a little more attention to your histogram. If you could boost it a little bit more toward the right, expose toward the right, that kind of philosophy, while saving, you know, while saving the meat and the highlights, um, that's going to be your better exposure versus letting your camera do it. Correct. If anyone out there is familiar with the technique and you've used the words exposed to the right, or we often call it ETTR, that's exactly the essence of why this technique is recommended. If you underexpose, you get more noise. So expose that histogram to the right, darken it later if you need to, but by pushing it to the right, you're, you're making sure that you're bringing in more signal. You're bringing in more light on that sensor so that that noise floor, which is that fixed base level amount of noise that's in every shot, will be minimized as much as you can minimize it. And then that lets you later develop the the tonality of the image, brightening here, darkening there the way you want without worrying that you're magnifying any noise that was avoidable. Yeah, and we actually talked about this um, in a little bit of depth in the podcast you did with us last time, number 107. If anyone's mm -hmm. listening, um, you know, and you're into HDR for realistic purposes, Royce got into quite a bit of this with that in mind, you know, shooting the scene, you know, with multiple frames so that the noise is inherently reduced so that you get, you know, cleaner results at the time of capture. Um, so if this is intriguing to you, I do recommend a listen to that 107 and the link will be in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Quickly here, a couple of other ways to not have the noise in the first place or not have any more of it than you need. I'll nod uh, briefly to the issue of the full frame sensor versus the crop sensor. A way to get a lower noise image for a given exposure is to use a camera that has a larger sensor. And as people will now start to sense the theme of what we're talking about here in noise, noise comes because you've got less signal or less light hitting the sensor. If you have a bigger sensor, you've got more light hitting it because the surface area of that sensor is simply larger. So if you compare a full frame sensor to a crop sensor, the full frame camera will record a lower noise image for the same exposure compared to the crop camera. That's because the full frame sensor has physically got more light. To be fair for just a half a second, I mean, sometimes we may or often, we may never notice the difference if we're just putting our stuff on the web. But when we start to make enlargements, that's when we're gonna to start to notice these differences more and more. Is that a fair statement? Definitely is. All of this stuff has to be put in the context that we, we're at risk here of arguing about the number of angels dancing on the, the head of a pin. A problem is only a problem if it is actually a problem for you. You know, if, if you're taking photographs and you're only posting small uh, thumbnail-sized images to a Facebook stream for your friends and family, probably noise is not a driving concern for you. But if you're a fine art photographer that has an ambition to do 40 by 60 inch prints and sell them for thousands of dollars in a gallery, 
uh, probably image quality and certain things like that may be a, a concern that you've got. And so you're going to be much more uh, attentive, if not even obsessive, about trying to work your craftsmanship and your images to polish them the way that you want them to be polished. You would certainly, so, you would certainly hope so anyway, if you're paying that kind of a coin for you print. Would, you would hope so. But then uh, art is very subjective and there's no accounting for taste, as we know. <laughs> as we know, indeed. No, it's true. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then the final thing I'll talk about just about how to have less noise is usually newer cameras, I kind of alluded to this before, newer cameras will be less noisy than older cameras. The engineers and designers of the electronics are upping their game constantly. Parts of the noise that are in the system here are, they're not physical uh, the way the film grain is. They're simply accidents of the way that the electronic works. And if we can make the electronics better, they'll be introducing less noise into our images. So newer cameras, all of the things being equal, typically have less noise than older cameras. If you have an older camera and it's been good for you, but now you're pushing your image making, maybe you're doing certain uh, size of enlargement that's bigger than what you've done before and you're finding that noise is becoming more and more of a pernicious problem and you're spending more and more time fighting it, this could be, in your case, a good reason to upgrade your camera as long as you're being very specific about why you're spending the dollars on that upgrade. I never recommend anybody to buy something newer just because it's newer. In fact, I think that's a really bad reason to buy something new just because it's new. But if it has certain characteristics to it that you need in your artwork or in your photography, then maybe that could be a good investment for you. And noise is one area where the newer cameras almost always are better than the old ones. Fair enough. And again, let's say we've taken the picture and it's full of noise. How do we get rid of it? <laughs> yeah, so uh, we did everything we could and we're still stuck with it. There's a certain amount of noise that is going to be in every image. Every digital image has got noise. The newest, best, most expensive camera you can possibly buy, and I shoot uh, Pentax 645D, medium format uh, digital camera. It's not new anymore. It's about three years old design now, but at the time it was probably the, the best bang for buck cleanest, uh, most amazing high-resolution digital camera you could get, and it was a $10,000 body, but those images have noise. So I do have to sometimes do something about that. So uh, if you shoot JPEG in your camera, as we talked about uh, earlier, you'll have less controls than if you shoot RAW. If noise is a property that you're concerned about and you're having to battle it, then I do recommend that you shoot RAW because you're going to have more tools with more latitude to fight the noise issues that that you want to fight. So uh, so shoot RAW, not JPEG. And uh, if you shoot RAW then, the second extension of that argument is use a modern RAW conversion tool. I myself do use the Adobe products. So I use Adobe Camera Raw and Photoshop in particular, but the RAW engine in Adobe Camera Raw is the same RAW engine as in Lightroom. And they're both very, very good. Uh, they have some excellent noise reduction settings in there so that as you convert your raw file into a TIFF image or into a JPEG even, you can actually reduce the noise through some setting controls during the raw conversion process. And they are very good. And for, for basic noise reduction, that may be all that you ever need right there. The one caveat that I'll make is don't, as before, moderation in all things, don't hit the noise reduction sliders too hard because the software cannot discriminate between false detail from the noise speckling and real detail, say the texture in skin, the texture in stone or wood or the feathers of a bird or the fur of an animal, it will just reduce everything that it thinks is noise. So you push it too far and you're going to get a plastic, flat, fake process looking image out the far end. Uh, be careful and don't go too hard on it. 
I wonder if, uh, like the clarity slider, though, uh, don't go too far, but maybe jack it too far at the beginning to, to know what that too far is and then pull exactly. it back kind of thing. Yeah, uh, you may not know where your endpoints are, so don't be the boiling frog. You know, give yourself a test and say, jack it all the way to the right. And it's like, okay, yeah, that clearly is way too far. I got to go less than that. So flip back and forth and kind of play with where your your region of uh, of, you know, acceptable loss of detail versus the desirable reduction in the noise will hit some sort of a sweet spot. And then uh, once you've gone through this and, and you know, you gain a level of experience over the type of images that you shoot on your camera at different ISO settings in different kinds of light, you will build up experience base and start to know intuitively where those settings should go with less experimentation. Okay. For those who may be like brand new to Lightroom though, I guess the two main sliders we're talking about are like the luminance and color sliders. Are those the ones that you use to reduce noise, I guess, uh, within Lightroom? Yeah, exactly. And uh, Adobe Camera Raw being the same settings as well. So luminance noise is closer in appearance to film grain. It's, it's monochromatic uh, speckles. Chromatic noise is the colored speckles, the red, green, blue dots that we see in there that looks like somebody threw a whole bunch of colored confetti all over your image. I think most people would probably would agree that the chromatic noise is by far the less appealing. So most people seem to find that the, the luminance noise or the monochromatic grain actually really is not that objectionable, especially if you're going to print. If you're looking at it on a big monitor, you might look at it and say, oh, the speckles, you know, they're really gross. But it's amazing what the eye will adapt to. If you go to print, you know, depending on the type of media that you're printing on, whether it's black and white or color and how far people are away when they're looking at your image, you might actually find that that film grain, as I talked about at the beginning, is actually a desirable thing from a creative standpoint. And you want to leave a little more of it in there than get rid of so much of it. But the, the red, green, blue speckling, almost nobody really thinks that's a great thing. And so you, you tend to want to get rid of that. 100%. We've talked about the tools that are available to you in Lightroom or Adobe Camera Raw, kind of the native things that would be in your major software program. Uh, maybe you're using the, the software that came with your camera. So for Canon cameras, they come with digital, what's the acronym? DPP, Digital Photographer Pro. Nikon has got uh, Capture NX. So whatever software you're using in there, maybe the noise reduction tools don't cut it for you. Maybe you've got a situation where your images are just much more difficult to deal with. There are third-party tools and plugins that you can buy that are much more powerful and flexible. There are several that come up a lot here. The one that I use is called Topaz Denoise, but a very popular one also is Nick Define. Uh, Nick software was just recently bought out by Google. So all of the Nick plugins are now sold by Google, but uh, several other popular ones are uh, Noise Ninja, Noiseware, and Neat Image. These tools all have different strengths and weaknesses. Some people have a preference for one or the other. They're all actually pretty good. They're pretty powerful. Try several out. Almost all of them have a free download that you can uh, download and try them out and see which ones work best for you. But if you're not getting any joy out of the standard noise reduction uh, tools in your basic software, a dedicated noise reduction software program probably is going to be able to do a much better, more flexible job for you. And so that's something to, uh, to be worth looking at. But the key with any of these tools is they all have the ability to be pushed too far. So don't push them too far with your settings. Otherwise, you'll get that plastic you know, flat look. But when you do want to use these tools is in the early stages of your post-processing workflow. Noise is a flaw, unless you're using it for creative purposes, it's a flaw. So you want to get rid of those flaws early in your image development because other steps that you make later that may boost color, boost contrast, or boost sharpening, if the noise is still in there, 
those later steps are going to boost the noise as well. Now you're stuck with even stronger noise, but you still got to get rid of it. And so then you run your noise program, and it's like having to hit, uh, you know, hit a mosquito with a sledgehammer. I mean, it's it's overkill now, and it's bad news. So the place to do your noise reduction within your workflow is do it early. If it's a flaw, get the flaw out of the image at the beginning before you do your other steps. Especially do it before you do your sharpening, because you do not want to be sharpening noise. It's really good tips. Just to the backdrop for 10 seconds. Sometimes, yes, using you know Photoshop and uh, Adobe Camera Raw, sometimes it'll work well. But sometimes some of these programs that you mentioned, you know, uh, some of the Topaz tools or the or the Nick tools. They make getting rid of it a little bit easier sometimes. So, you know, use the tool as Royce, of course, has suggested, but don't go too far. And doing it early is such a great tip. Oh, my God. Such a great tip. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. Because, again, you know, at the very end, you can notice it. And then it, this has happened to me, uh, not so much anymore, but a while ago. You notice it at the end. You try and remove it at the end. And then what you end up doing is you also end up removing some of the detail that you wanted to keep. Exactly. And now you get stuck into this kind of this seesaw where you're, you're pounding on one factor and it, it overkills in another factor. So you go pound on that one. You're playing a game of whack-a-mole. You know, every time you whack something, something else pops up. If you get into that mode, it's a sign that probably something earlier in your workflow was, was not maybe done the way you should do it. It's time to take a deep breath, step back, go for coffee, you know, go for a walk, clear your head, yeah. come back, reset your whole workflow closer back to the beginning somewhere and make a different decision because you probably got off the path that you wanted to be on at some earlier step. And it may very well be that the image just doesn't look natural anymore because you're you're trying to like overcorrect and overcorrect. It just doesn't look natural anymore. You don't know why. Maybe go take a walk, step back and, and start again kind of thing. It's a really good suggestion actually. Yep. Are we ready to get into CA, chromatic aberration? Let's talk about chromatic aberration. A lot of people have heard it, but a lot of people probably are misusing its definition and uh, don't really know what it is. So can you clarify it for us, Royce? Yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk again uh, in our pattern here. Let's say, uh, where does chromatic aberration come from? You know, what is it and where does it come from? We talked about halos and said halos come from software processing on the back end. We talked about noise and said noise comes from inside your camera, but it's to do with the sensor and the digital electronics in the camera. Chromatic aberration comes from the camera as well, but it's coming from the lens optics, the actual physical glass elements and the design of how they bend light. I think as kids, probably all of us in school had the experience of using a prism, which is a, a, a triangular or some other shaped uh, piece of glass, and you shine a light through one side, and a rainbow comes out the other side. You've probably done that, and many of our readers or listeners would have done that. Yeah, for sure. I think we've all done it as kids. Yeah, so what's happening is that the light rays are bending at different angles as they pass through the glass. Uh, the technical term here is called refraction. Light comes in wavelengths, and different colors of light that we see, red, green, blue, you know, yellow, orange, all the way up to UV on the top end and infrared on the bottom end, these light wavelengths all bend at a different angle as they physically pass through glass. That's refraction. Well, what is a what is a lens? It's a bunch of glass that the light rays is flying through before it can hit the sensor to be recorded. So what we can predict is as the light rays are going through the glass, they're bending at different angles. And depending on the wavelength of that light, it may physically hit the sensor on the back end in a different place. If you do that, you may get 
what looks like a, a colorful image out in the front scene that you're looking at and you say, you know, maybe there's a person wearing a red shirt and standing next to a blue car on the edge where that red shirt and the blue car are side by side, those light rays coming right at that edge may bend through the optics of the lens in a different way and hit the sensor in the back and be recorded in a kind of a bizarre way where the red and the blue are sort of blending together in a funky manner and you end up with what we've probably seen a lot of purple fringing yeah especially on cheaper cameras you know in the old point and shoots when they first came out or these days on cell phone cameras you take an image where there's a contrasting edge either it's really a contrasting color like red versus blue or it's a very high contrast of brightness dark versus bright you'll get this purple fringe all the way along that edge i've seen it on like a telephone pole against the sky yes tree branches is a really common one or of a building against the sky uh, anywhere that you've got a strong light shining on something and then there's a shadow, hard edge shadow side there, uh, those high contrast edges, you'll get these purple fringes. But they might be other colors, not just purple. It all depends on how the glass optics have been designed and how they're bending the light rays. Because, of course, the lens designers know about this kind of stuff and so they're designing different pieces of the glass in there to bend the light rays in different ways. You might get blue fringes, you might get uh, red fringes, you know, you might get green fringes, you might get different colors depending on the properties of the lens. So this is an optical issue. It has nothing to do with digital. You know, if you were shooting film, you still had chromatic aberration because of the glass. And unfortunately, uh, the bad thing here is because what the lens is doing is bending your light rays in, a, in an imperfect way and the sensor is then recording that because it has no other choice. Along that edge, we're destroying the image detail. The actual real image color is lost and what we've recorded on the sensor and then dumped out into our JPEG or into our RAW file is a purple fringe or a green fringe. There's no way to kind of get back to what the original light was because the optics imperfectly transmitted the light through them and kind of wrecked that uh, that part of it. A link uh, that you can stick into the show notes, you know, a Wikipedia page that explains chromatic aberration if somebody wants to read a little more detail and kind of see some diagrams that show how the light rays bend through. There's, there's several different kinds of chromatic aberration even. There's not just one kind of it. Uh, there's two major variations of it. But the key thing about it is there, it, because it's a property of the lens, we can look at it and say, well, what kind of lenses or, or in what way do I use the lens that's causing this to happen? And there are some common patterns to it. So typically these color fringes, if they're purple, you know, green, red, whatever they are, they're going to be worse and more plentiful towards the outer edges of the image and not so much, in fact, not at all probably to the center of the image. And that's because of the angle of the light rays that are coming through the glass stuff that's coming through the edges of the glass is typically bending at a sharper angle. Stuff that's coming through the center of the glass is more or less straight on. So the, there's not as much bending of, of the light going on in the center of the frame. Uh, typically then, if you follow that through to, to its logical conclusion, if you have a wider angle lens, like say you're shooting a 24 mil lens or a 17 mil lens, a 14 mil lens, a 10 mil lens, really wide angle, you've got far more light rays that are coming in on the edges of the frame, which is where the chromatic aberration is more likely to occur. Whereas if you have a telephoto lens, like a 70 to 200 mil zoom, or you've got a 300 mil prime or a 500, 600 mil prime, those are very, very long telephoto focal lengths, and there's not a lot of light that can come into the lens and hit on the edges. It's a really long tube, and most of the light is coming right down the middle of the pipe. 
So your telephoto lenses tend to have less chromatic aberration and your wide angles tend to have more. And the final thing, uh, actually final couple of things, uh, it is related to your aperture as well. So if you shoot wide open, the aperture, remember, is a physical opening in your lens that's allowing more or less light rays to pass through. If you open the aperture, more light is coming through, and so that means there's more likely to be these bendy light rays that are a bit mismatched with each other. But if you stop down, say you're stopping down to f16, f22, the aperture now is physically closing down to a smaller and smaller hole in there, and it clips off all of those other crazy bendy light rays that cause the chromatic aberration. So you're less likely to get it when you're stopping down. The final point is cheaper lenses are made with cheaper glass, cheaper optical designs. More expensive lenses typically are made with more expensive lenses, high index lenses. We probably have the experience of that from anybody who's an eyeglass wearer. If you wear high index lens versus a low index lens, you know there's a different quality of the light and the contrast passing through those optics. The more expensive lens typically is, not always, but typically is going to have less chromatic aberration. So if we boil through all of those, what we have is wide-angle lens, more chromatic aberration towards the outer edges. The better glass is going to be uh, a better performer. And if you stop down your aperture, you're going to have a better performance as far as chromatic aberration as well. So that's kind of jumping ahead to say the best way to get rid of CA is don't have it in the first place. How do you not have it in the first place? Use a better lens, use a longer focal length of lens, stop down your aperture instead of shooting so wide open, or of course, change your vantage point and reposition to remove those high contrast things from within your frame, or wait until a different time of day when the light is not so strong. This is why often you know people favor shooting in the golden hour around sunrise and sunset because the light is not just very rich and kind of red and warm, it's also low contrast. So you're not going to get a lot of chromatic aberration uh, around a sunrise shoot or a pre-dawn shoot in the blue hour because you don't have those high contrast edges from the light. Really good to know, of course. But, 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 despite our, you know, best efforts, sometimes we like to shoot at f2.8, we like to use selective focus, and sometimes, like you say, even though we may have a two to $3,000 lens on our camera, just the nature of, of the colors intersecting, uh, that will produce chromatic aberration, and thus, we must go to tools in order to get rid of them. Exactly. Sometimes you're stuck with it. It's there, and it happens, so now you got a deal. So... Uh, it is a property of the lens, and uh, if you get it to come all the way through to your image, the first thing to ask yourself is, you know, can I live with it? Uh, it's going to be in there, but, you know, do you print, and if so, how big, or are you posting online? Do you process your image a lot or not much? You know, if you do process it more, if the, you leave the chromatic aberration in there, just as in the case of noise, if you're boosting color, boosting contrast, and doing sharpening, things like that are going to enhance that chromatic aberration and make it stand out even more. So if you're going for big prints or you do a lot of processing, you probably want to get it out of there because it is a flaw. And unlike the case of noise and unlike the case of halos, I personally don't have any legitimate creative purpose that I ever use to get rid of it. And it sounds like you have no fondness for it in any way, shape, or form. Not really. You know, if I have a lens that is subject to a lot of chromatic aberration, often I'll look to say, is there a better lens in that focal length that's got a better quality of optical design or whatever? Because I'm not getting any younger. None of us are. And I don't want time sitting here fighting in the tools trying to get rid of something that's created by my lens if I can find a different lens that doesn't have it. But let's say for the sake of argument, you are stuck with it. So here's another case where 
if you shoot JPEG in your camera and chromatic aberration is something that really is impacting your quality of life and really reducing your happiness, then you might want to switch over and be a raw shooter instead because the good raw converters, uh, actually the best raw converters, actually have calibrated lens profiles built into them for your specific model of lens on your camera body. And the vendor, let's say Adobe in this case, who make Lightroom and Adobe Camera Raw, they run through a bunch of test suites to calibrate the optical behavior of your lens and will automatically reduce a whole array of flaws, one of which is chromatic aberration. DxO Optics is another popular raw converter. Maybe some of uh, the listeners use DxO. It's got the same kind of thing. They put a lot of effort into calibrating lenses and building up what's basically a mathematical model of how that lens changes the light, and they'll reverse out automatically as much of these flaws as they can. There's a kind of a, a common tool on the web out there called PT Lens, maybe that a lot of our listeners use. It's a, a fairly inexpensive app. I think it's maybe 25 bucks, something like that. It also uh, will reduce chromatic aberration. So use a good raw converter or use uh, PT Lens. It's not a raw converter. It's an image distortion corrector is what it is. It'll work on you know TIFF images, uh, JPEGs as well. Use a piece of software like that that profiles or calibrates the lenses and can automatically try to get rid of as many of these flaws as possible. That's that's the easy way. I've actually played with some of these tools, and we're gonna we're gonna throw some, you know, links in the show notes. I've used the DxO Optics. It's actually quite cool. I used it about six or seven months ago. I found it was very powerful uh, in getting rid of some of these effects, and it did actually beat, uh, you know, in in my uh, estimation anyway, some of the the lens correction tools that were like built into Photoshop. Some of these tools are really, really specialized. And, you know, if you are having, you know, problems with your particular lens and you can't afford to replace it or for whatever reason, you know, you may want to give some of these software programs a whirl. Absolutely. Uh, DxO, I think, is probably one of the most, if not the most advanced ones that's out there. They put a lot of effort uh, into this. Their whole thing behind their company philosophy is trying to get, you know, as much image quality as you can out of out of the hardware and they have done a really good job of it. Uh, I would use DxO myself if they supported my Pentax 645 digital medium format, but alas, they do not. So uh, I use Adobe Camera Raw. Uh, it's it's not quite as good, I would say. You know, I've seen some examples of stuff with DxO that I think are very, very good, but uh, the Adobe products are very good as well these days. And they'll do a lot of this on automatic. Uh, but uh, let's say you've tried one of these automatic tools, whether it's Adobe, DxO, PT Lens, some of the others, and they still don't quite do it. You know, you might have a lens that has so much flare, so much chromatic aberration in these outer edges that the automatic doesn't do it. Most of them will have some sliders. Uh, if you check any of them, they'll have some uh, manual adjustments. You typically see sliders for uh, purple or green, you know, or uh, different things like this. So you can manually go in and do some adjustments while you're looking and zooming in on your image to say, okay, if I tweak it a little more here, I can take that purple fringing down just a little bit more than the automatics did and maybe get rid of it. The downside of these sliders, though, is again, they tend to be fairly, um, fairly single-minded. They don't really have an understanding of what's going on across the entire frame. If they're reducing the purple fringe in one area, it's because they're depurpling it. They're shifting it in the, the opposite color, and that may create the opposite color fringe some other place in the image because they're applying a little a color edit 
across the entire image, just trying to get rid of edges that may show up with that sort of a color. So these sliders can be used to manually tweak and tune things, but often they're a, they're a bit simple-minded and can't really do a very good job to fix one problem without creating the opposite problem somewhere else in the image. So the final thing that you may be stuck with, again, as in the case of the dodge and burn tools for fixing halos that are really tricky, you may end up having to come into an application like Photoshop or GIMP or Picture Windows Pro or any of these and doing some manual retouching edits using something like the Photoshop sponge tool that just removes uh, saturated colors as you paint with a, a brush tip. Or you may, uh, you may actually use the paintbrush tool itself, or you may use the clone tool or the healing brush in Photoshop and actually paint over top of these fringy colored edges with a more natural looking color that you sample in from somewhere else in the image to repair those edges if the, if the fringe uh, fixers in the raw conversion just don't cut it. Right, right. If you're a good enough selector, you could also likely take advantage of some of the uh, content-aware tools and just fill in the area if you could if you could select it um, properly. There are ways to get rid of it, but like you say, um, sometimes if it is in one area, it can affect another area if you haven't seen it. So the manual way sometimes is is the best way to go, uh, especially if you're if it's really bugging you and, and your eye is noticing it in one area and you can get rid of it and you got good skills, you may just want to do it manually versus using uh, the sliders, which may affect, like you say, other parts of the image and you may not notice it until the end. Maybe you do your sharpening in the end and then you, you might be on that seesaw again. Exactly. Sometimes I find that just jumping and doing a very, very targeted manual retouch in a, in a small selected area that does catch the eye and then maybe leaving some of these flaws in the rest of the image because they're buried in a place that's not visually going to attract anybody's attention. I mean, I'll know they're there, but honestly, they don't actually impact the image at all except in this one really, really tiny localized region. Jumping in and just doing a quick manual retouch in that spot may be the most time effective way to go. And uh, so, you know, it's important to use judgment about what problem am I really trying to solve here and what's the fastest way to do it because none of us really are being paid, uh, unless we are professional retouchers, to sit in Photoshop, you know, tweaking around with tools and, and doing a lot of stuff. The objective always is to get to the finished image, put that image in front of our audience and just hear that, wow, you know, that's what we want. Yeah, and then get out there and, and start all over again and spend more time shooting, you know, if we can. So, you know, it was really, uh, really lovely to do this podcast with you. You explained, like, all these three elements really, really well, how to avoid, you know, incurring them or incurring their wrath <laughs> at the beginning. And then uh, at the end of it all, trying to, you know, get rid of them uh, at the end when we have no choice and they are introduced into our, our photos. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, Royce, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? What are you doing on the web these days? Well, I'm, uh, I'm all over the web in a lot of different places. If people Google for my name, they'll find me. Uh, my main website is vividaspectphoto.com. That's all one word, no dashes or anything, just vividaspectphoto.com. And I am on Facebook. I'm on Google+. Uh, you know, I'm on Flickr. I'm on 500pics.com. Uh, so if you do uh, connect with any of my profiles, any of those places, they do tend to link around to all my other active profiles as well. Absolutely, anybody feel free to uh, drop me a line on any of these social media sites if you've got questions or comments uh, about the show or about our previous uh, HDR uh, podcast 107, any of that kind of stuff. I'm always open to hear from people. 
Appreciate that, Royce. And I'm going to throw some of these links in the show notes. So if you're driving, uh, you don't have to stop your car to write them down. They'll be in the show notes. Uh, Before we let you go, Royce, this is one of our longer podcasts. But before we let you go, is there anything else that you want to leave our our listeners with? The key thing, you know, a lot of what we talk about here, uh, it's a lot of technical stuff, but have fun with it, everyone. Uh, It's about photography. It's about establishing a connection with your viewers. So don't ever let the technical obsessions and the technical qualities Impose over just making great images and making a lot of great images. So have fun and do good work. The rest will take care of itself. Awesome advice. Thanks so much for doing this, Royce. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Marco. Good talking to you again. And I'd like to thank uh, Royce Howland one last time for doing that great interview. Uh, Royce explains things so super well. It's a real treat to have him on our show, and I know uh, he'll be a guest in the future as well. I do recommend that you check out Royce's site, vividaspectphoto.com. He has some lovely fine art photography there. Uh, He leads some tours, and he's written some cool books. So I do recommend you take a look. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And now you know what to look for in your photos, and uh, maybe you can avoid uh, getting problems in them due to Royce's great advice. So just get out there and keep on shooting. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Bye for now.